It's the 187th episode of Monster Kid Radio, your podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the podcast, and I hope you're enjoying the song, The Path to the Black Lodge. That is from the band The Imperial Royales. It's on their album, It's Dark. You can find them over on The, that's T-H-E-E, Imperial Royales.bandcamp.com. The song appears on Monster Kid Radio with their permission. Go check them out. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. You get to hear the song in its entirety at the end of the show. Welcome to the podcast. This is an exciting week for me. We're kicking off a new feature here on Monster Kid Radio, something I've been wanting to do for a while. Normally, each week of Monster Kid Radio is devoted to a particular movie. This time around, though, we're doing things a little differently. This week, It's a double feature. This is something that I've been wanting to do for a while where we do a double feature, a look at two movies that have some sort of connective tissue, a link that puts the two movies together, at least as far as we're concerned here on Monster Kid Radio. And to kick things off, to help me out, I've got longtime Monster Kid Radio guest and one of my dearest friends, Scott Morris on the show this week. He picked one movie. I picked another. Basically what we did is we took movies that both of us had seen a long time ago. Remember enjoying and then decided to revisit. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in depth with Scott. On top of that, we've got a monster kid radio crash coming up. We're going to talk about that as well. So stay tuned for that. You know what? Why don't we go ahead and kick things off talking about the crash. Then we're going to get into the first part of the Scott Morris boy. I haven't seen that in a very long time. Double feature right after this. Such stories as H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds and Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea have challenged mankind. So today, man is successfully probing deep into the mysteries of the universe. Can he penetrate the greatest mystery of all, time itself? It took the creative magic of George Pal and the fabulous production know-how of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer to catapult you through time into a world that is yet to be. Why is it that we usually ignore the fourth dimension? You you see, we can move in the other three. As the doctor said, up, down, forwards, backwards, sideways. But when it comes to time, we are prisoners. Inventor Rod Taylor's breakthrough into the realm of the fourth dimension is defied by his friend Alan Young. If that machine can do what you say it can, destroy it, George, before it destroys you. Every moment is a year, hurtling through the atomic wars of the future on an incredible excursion into the unknown. What are the people like? Ah, the shape of things to come. It's lovely Yvette Mimieu. And what happens when boy meets girl thousands of years hence? How do they wear their hair? Who? The women of your time. Up like that? Show me. Is this the human race of the future? Or is this the Morlocks, fiendish creatures who live in a weird underground world? And the Eloi, the tranquil sunshine people, who the Morlocks dominate and maintain like cattle, luring them below with the hypnotic wail of the sirens to feed upon them in cannibalistic horror. got a Monster Kid Radio crash coming up this week, Wednesday, the 25th of May. This is happening at the Joy Cinema here in the Tigard, Oregon area. You can find out more about them over at thejoycinema.com. It's part of the Weird Wednesday series, which means it's free for 21 and over only. Of course, you're encouraged to buy snacks at the concession stand to, you know, help support the Joy, which is one of my favorite theaters I just love going there. And the Weird Wednesday showing uh, Wednesday night, the 25th, I'm going to play the trailer and let you try to guess 
what movie we're crashing. Horrors of Spider Island. Eight beautiful girls and one lone man struggling for survival. With death, sudden, violent, and horrible lurking in the shadows. Horrors of Spider Island. Out of the night came a fate worse than death. A man's mind twisted, his brain poisoned, with an uncontrollable lust to kill. Horrors of Spider Island. A tale of terror that will leave you limp. So hideous and shocking, you won't believe your eyes. His hunger for victims was never satisfied. Prepare to be frightened out of your wits by the horrors of Spider Island. I don't know if you caught it, but in case you didn't hear the title of the movie, it's the horrors of Spider Island, also known as Body in the Web from 1960, directed by Fritz Butker. I have never seen this movie before. It does turn up in a number of public domain sets. I probably own three or four copies of it myself. But to see it on the big screen with a group of people who love going to these kinds of movies, Weird Wednesday, the joy is a treat. So Monster Kid Radio is going to crash the show, which means I'm bringing my portable recorder and I'm going to record something at the movie. I'll probably record the introduction. I'll do a little bit of recording myself, talk a little bit about the movie. And if anybody is there from the Monster Kid Radio listenership, Please introduce yourself. Please let me know, and I'd love to put you on the show. Find out what you think of the movie. See if it's as good as it sounds. Again, that is this Wednesday, May 25th at 9 p.m. at the Joy Cinema. I'm hard to miss. I'm the guy wearing the Monster Kid Radio shirt. See you there, 9 p.m. Written in the stars is a message of doom for this, our world. And now in the most shattering experience the screen has ever given you, Paramount tells what could happen within your lifetime when worlds collide. An astronomer checks and double-checks his horrifying discovery. A distant star racing through space toward an inevitable collision with this planet. The United Nations meet in emergency session. All conflicts pale before this threat from another world. If you wait until the danger is visible to the naked eye, it will be too late to escape. High on a mountaintop, an army of scientists work desperately to build this giant rocket, this modern Noah's Ark, to carry a few picked survivors of our doomed civilization to a new life on another world, reaching the heights of self-sacrifice, the depths of the animal lust for survival as they fight to be among the few who can be saved. Let's take the ship away from them! Come on! Fighting among themselves fighting against time, as doomsday is upon them. I think all you scientists are crackpots. Nothing is going to happen. When worlds collide, you'll see the most amazing, awe-inspiring scenes ever put on film. The forces of nature unleashed in all their terrifying force. Tremendous tidal waves smashing New York City. The molten fires from the bowels of the earth gushing out to consume our world. remember how long it's been since i've had him on the show but let's welcome back my partner one of my partners over at 1951 down place the head muckety muck or one of the head muckety mucks at disney indiana my good friend scott morris 
Welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, sir. I'm not speaking to you. Oh, no. Why? Was it the movies I made you watch? No. Are you still holding a grudge over the zombie porn? Well, that's true. I am. But (laughs) that's not why I'm not speaking to you now. Why why now? What did I do? Well, a couple weeks ago here on uh, Monster Kid Radio, you had a really good segment where you talked about all the folks that have been guests on your show that were now nominated for Rondo Awards. Right. I remember that. It was uh, earlier this month. And you forgot somebody. Who did I forget? Did I forget to mention Casey because he's a co-producer on 1951 Down Place? Well, you didn't mention him, but then again, he's not been a guest on this show. You were going through guests of Monster Kid Radio. Uh-huh. You didn't mention me. Oh. That's true. I didn't. And there was a reason. No, there's not really a reason for that. <laughs> uh, so, Scott... <laughs> Scott is one of the three Hamigos over at the 1951 Down Place podcast that he and uh, Casey Criswell and I put together once a month talking about Hammer Films. I'll drop the promo in for that later on in this episode. And the 1951 Down Place podcast was nominated for Best Multimedia Podcasting or Streaming, Category 23 in the Rondos. So I did mention the show, though, right? You did mention the show, yes. I just didn't mention your guys' names. That's right. <laughs> Well, it's my show here on Monster Kid Radio. It's all about me. No, I don't know. <laughs> no, Sorry. That's no big deal. <laughs> I just didn't want the competition with Monster Kid Radio, you see. Well, that's I knew true. If I mentioned you, I'd blow myself out of the water. <laughs> you were handicapping it. I understand. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on your Rondo nomination for 1951 Down Place. Why, thank you. And congratulations on your multiple Rondo Award nominations for Monster Kid Radio <laughs> in 1951 Down Place. Oh, man. Thank you. <laughs> so voting in the Rondos continues. It is, uh, from what I understand, going to be open until mid-April. So, again, head over to rondoaward.com to check out the complete ballot or go through the archives at monsterkidradio.net. I believe I posted on March 7th a list of all the Monster Kid Radio-related Nominees who have made the ballot, people who have appeared on the show in the past who are now nominated for a rondo. And I know that Scott's going to vote for 1951 Down Place for Best Multimedia, right? Of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, the rondos, man. That's been going for you. This is the 13th year for the rondos. That is awesome. And we've had 1951 Down Place on the ballot before and Monster Kid Radio on the ballot before. So, you know, it's just, it's an honor to be nominated. And I know it's kind of cliche to say that but it really is cool man if people haven't checked out the rondo awards just go look at the ballot and have your wallet out because you're going to create a checklist of all the things that you missed last year that you just gotta buy well i know you've said that before and i do the same thing i use that as a guide to go check out other things so it's awesome there's some great books in there and movies and dvds that have commentaries that i didn't know about and just some really good stuff and i'm always adding more blogs to my feedly based on the blog list that comes out on the Rondo Award every or ballot every year. So tons of stuff. Good stuff. Uh, David and the gang over there at the Classic Horror Film Boards, they do an amazing job. I second that, and I appreciate all the work that they go through to put this ballot together and to tabulate all the votes and everything. Thanks a lot, guys. Definitely. And, you know, I know we've got some movies to talk about, but before we get there, I want to talk about another guest that's been on Monster Kid Radio repeatedly in the past who's on the Rondo Award ballot this year for Favorite Horror Host, I want to talk about Larry Underwood real quick and give Dr. Gain Green a shout out. As of this recording, he is now a Hall of Famer. He was inducted into the Horror Host Hall of Fame at Horror Hound Weekend Cincinnati this past weekend. By the time you guys and gals hear this, he's now a Hall of Famer. So congratulations to Larry. Congratulations, Larry. I uh, hope to someday uh, get to meet you. I want to meet him in person myself. So, <laughs> And I live a lot closer to him than you do. That's true. That's true. Yeah. No, one of these years, I think all of us are going to descend on a monster bash or something, and they won't know what hit them. <laughs> I just figured we were going to have a Monster Kid Radio Con someday. A Monster Kid Radio Convention. Start the Kickstarter now. <laughs> how, how long can you start a Kickstarter campaign for? How long can it run? Because it's going to take us a couple of years to get that thing together. <laughs> Well, we'll throw in uh, Downplace, so it'll be the Monster Kid Radio 1951 Downplace Convention. That will double the amount of money coming in. I see, I see. Well, I won't mention your name, though. Of course you won't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So, you know, it's good to have you back on the show, and you are the guy over at Disney Indiana with your wife, Tracy. 
What's going on over at Disney Indiana, man? Uh, we just put out another one of our Make Mine Music episodes where we revisited our favorite Muppet songs. Early on in our podcast, episode 37, we counted down our six favorite Muppet songs. And uh, we were spurred on by some of our feedback here recently from um, Rick from the... Well, he's changed his blog name now. He's confused me. He was the Recovering Uber Geek blog, and I'm sorry, Rick. I can't remember exactly what you changed it to. I can because I've got it on the website in our links section at monsterkidradio.net. Well, help me out. <laughs> I don't know. You're a Rondo Award nominee. You can't you handle it? Uh, it's Fumbling Forwards. So the web address stayed the same, but he is now the man behind the Fumbling Forwards blog, and he's made some noise on Facebook about starting a podcast as well. Yes. Well, he contacted us because he's going back and listening to our old episodes and really enjoyed our Muppet episode of Make Mine Music and gave us some of the songs that he liked. So we decided to revisit it, and we counted down our spots uh, 12 through 7, so the next six in our favorite Muppet songs. It was a lot of fun. It's a good episode. Or it's a great episode because I'm on it. Well, that's but true. But it's a really good... <laughs> So two Rondo Award nominees. Man, I'm just going to ride that all episode. <laughs> no, seriously, though, it was a great episode. I love the Muppets. I think a lot of people who are monster kids can find a lot of things to like about the Muppets. I mean, Alice Cooper was on the Muppet Show. The Muppets had the monsters, for crying out loud. Vincent Price was on the Muppet Show. Oh, Vincent Price. <laughs> the Vincent Price Kermit the Frog segment where they both have vampire teeth. Yes. It's fantastic. Anyway, it's a good episode that you guys did. One of my favorites because I love the Muppets. And Listeners, if you aren't listening to Disney Indiana and you're interested in my musical tastes, I did contribute a contribution to the Muppet music countdown as well. It's DisneyIndiana.com. Go check out Scott and Tracy's fine work over there. And you guys have been doing it, what, for now, what? Five plus? Yeah, and July will be six years we'll be doing the podcast. One of the best Disney-related podcasts out there, period, and the best podcast featuring Tracy Morris. Yes, it is the most awesome <laughs> podcast featuring Tracy Morris. Yes, that's all right. You should change the name of the podcast. <laughs> Disney Indiana featuring Tracy. Tracy Morris's Disney Indiana featuring Tracy Morris. <laughs> Starring Tracy Morris. Yes. <laughs> Produced by Tracy Morris. Written by Tracy Morris. Is she in the room with you right now? No, she's not. <laughs> oh, okay. But, but she'll hear this later. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so... When you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio, go check that out. If you have room in your ear holes after you've heard about the awesomeness that are the two movies that we're talking about this week on the show. This is something that I've been wanting to do for a while, kind of do a a theme, a double feature week. And Scott came up with the idea of doing a double feature of movies that, well, the other person hasn't seen, but also movies that we haven't seen in a very, very long time. But they made an impression on us, and we wanted to revisit them, and that's why we're talking about the movies The Mole People from 1956 and When Worlds Collide from 1951. Listeners, you have to figure out which one of us brought which movie. I was about to say that. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I am a Rondo nominee. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's not going to get old at all. (laughs) At at least we're not blaming Casey. (laughs) <laughs> well, we can't, not on this show, but we could on the Rondo Award nominated 1951 Down Plays. <laughs> now, the real question is, since I've got to edit this, am I going to leave all this in? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I probably will. Well, I'm sure you're going to leave the whole stuff about the most awesome Tracy Morris in it. Well, I, I kind of have to now. <laughs> Scott, you're okay, too. Uh, fair to Midland. <laughs> You know who's got us all beat, though? John Agar. John Agar rules, man, in the immortal words of the dead Elvi. John Agar rules, and he is the lead in one of the films that we're going to be talking about. However, we're going to make you wait a little bit, because I want to talk about When Worlds Collide first for a couple of different reasons. It came out first, 1951, and let's go ahead and ruin the surprise. This was the movie that Scott picked, and he's the guest, so. Yeah, this is a movie that I saw... Uh, probably when I was in middle school, was one of those Sunday afternoon local channels threw it on. Oh, it feels like it. And I remember watching it, and I haven't seen it since then. In fact, for a while, when I would go back and think of this movie, I, you know, I remembered it as two planets actually colliding, not a star 
which is what actually it is. But I could never remember the title of the film. And I've always wanted to revisit it once I finally figured out what it was. But I just never made the effort to go and find it until Derek had mentioned to me about something of coming up with a double feature idea. And this movie popped into my mind at that time. So I thought it would be a good one to revisit. So that's why I decided to let's do movies that we haven't seen in a long time that we think that we remember that we like. (laughs) (laughs) And this was one that I had never seen. Uh, You know, there are a lot of holes in my monster kid background. I'm quickly filling those. Well, as quickly as I can, because there's so many out there, but I'm filling those monster kid holes in my heart with movies that, man, I really should have seen because this movie, man, I like this one a lot. And I should have seen this a long time ago. Well, this one doesn't really have a monster. This is probably more of a star kid type of film. I mean, it's definitely a sci-fi film. There's no evil monster. It's the dude in the wheelchair. He's a monster. (laughs) Well, he's a dick. That's why he's a monster. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Disney in Indiana is where you can get content like that, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Yeah, you got to go off script to to get that. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a George Powell production. What do we know about George Powell? He did a lot of these sci-fi epics. In the 50s and such, right? You got to remember The Time Machine. That is probably one of my all-time favorite sci-fi films is The Time Machine and George Powell. Really? Yes. I love The Time Machine. I love it's The Morlocks. Good. I love the whole – everything about that film is just – I love it. Okay. Well, we'll have you back on to do The Time Machine. And then Tom Beagler, who's been on the show before, he and I have talked a lot about doing The Seven Faces of Dr. Lyle, which is another George Powell film. Another good film. I've never seen it either. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen The Time Machine? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because you were going to lose a lot of credit if you hadn't seen The Time Machine. See, I, and I wouldn't admit it if I... No, I've seen... <laughs> no, I have seen The Time Machine. I've seen Atlantis, The Lost Continent. I actually did an episode of the B-Movie cast where we talked about that one with Vince and Nick and Mary and company. But as far as George Powell goes, I think I've got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, he won five Oscars in his career, so... And how often do we talk about Oscar award winners here on Monster Kid Radio? <laughs> Not very often. I know, right? Now, he did produce Doc Savage, The Man of Bronze, which I don't think we want to talk too much about, but... (laughs) We haven't mentioned his other big film. Oh, what's that? War of the Worlds. Oh, well, yeah, which we did talk about here on the show. Yeah, you and Tracy talked about that one. The Amazing Tracy, yeah. Yes, that's the movie that actually led to The Time Machine. Really? Yeah. The estate of H.G. Wells was so impressed with his treatment for War of the Worlds that they went to George Powell and said, if you want to do any of his other works, which one would you like to do? You're welcome to do any of them. And he picked the time machine. Well, that's cool. The time, I mean, all these movies, really all the Powell films that I've seen all have a certain look. There's a lot of vibrant, bright colors. There's a lot of model work. You can almost instantly tell that you're watching a Powell production from the fifties. Specifically, you see a lot of that. I mean, I think when worlds collide has that look, even at the very, very end. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to the very, very end. The colors are there. <laughs> this was a lot of fun for me. This was one I'm glad you brought that to the table. I'm glad I got a chance to watch it. It's streaming on Amazon, which is how I got my hands on it. Not part of Prime. You had to rent it, but that's okay. I, it was more than worth the three ninety nine. Now, we're talking about George Powell. He wasn't the director. He was the producer. The right. director was a guy by the name of Rudolph... Is it Mate? Mate? Mate is what I Mate? think, but I, okay. that would be my guess. This is the E with the little thing on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> don't know a heck of a lot about him, and I don't think he did a lot of genre work, did he? The, the other film that I know him for is the original 1942 version of To Be or Not To Be. Mm. If you look at his credit list on the IMDb, he's got more credits as a cinematographer as opposed to a director. And I could see that. There were a lot of shots in when worlds collide that it looked as if they paid real close attention to where people were Mm -hmm. in in the construction of the scenes was really interesting to me. It was something that made me kind of stop and think and and try to imagine how the conversation went when they're deciding who's going to stand where in the long sets, you know, it just was really epic and big and grand and vast. And I think it took a cinematographer's eye to pull that off. This movie looks like they had more money than they actually did because of that. Oh, yeah, it definitely did. And I think it's better for it. It's a bright color. 
1951 to see a 1951 genre film in bright color like that, especially when the movie we're talking about later, which came out five years later from Universal, still in black and white. It looks big. It's a little dated because, well, there's nobody's got a cell phone or anything like that. But beyond the technology, I mean, the concerns of the people all seem contemporary to me. This seems to me as a movie, yeah, it's a science fiction movie, but Mm -hmm. it almost seems to me as if this actually happened, if, if the Earth was going to collide with a star, this is something that might actually happen if they had the chance to jump to a planet that's orbiting that star. Right. More science fiction, but almost also based on some science fact weaved in throughout it. And it's something that's been touched on before, and I'm sure it's been touched... Well, I guess it's been touched on before. I know it's been touched on since. I know when we all went through Y2K, there were a couple of movies about the end of the world. And see, there was that one with uh, John Cusack a few years ago. It was about the end of the world or whatever, and they all got on the big arc. So John Cusack and Monster Kid Radio. Didn't think that was going to happen before I had my cup of coffee. I didn't Uh, think it was going to happen ever. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it is something that's been touched on before. Deep Impact did it. Man. I'm just, I need to get back to my black and white roots, man. What am I talking about? So anyway, <laughs> of all those types of movies, I think this is my favorite that I've seen so far. Very cool. This movie's also referenced going forward. It's a very big tentpole, I think, in science fiction films. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's even uh, referenced in uh, Star Trek. Really? Yes. In Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, there is two cargo containers that are seen uh, in the Genesis cave, labeled Belos and Zira. Seriously? I never noticed yes. that. <laughs> Look at you bringing the Star Trek. That's awesome. And, of course, this uh, is also mentioned in the science fiction double feature song at the beginning of Rocky Horror Picture Show. So what did you encounter first, that song or this movie? This movie. Okay. I, I didn't uh, get into Rocky Horror until uh, later in my teens. I'm just kind of pausing to let the song start running through people's heads because I know it won't get out of your head for a while. I thought you were hoping that I would start singing it. <laughs> I never have that hope. You have that fear. But you- <laughs> <laughs> so it's about the end of the world. It's got some great people involved behind the camera. George Powell. We got this awesome direct. I mean, the director did a great job on this. The cast immediately brought me in. Now, I know at the very beginning, it's kind of like a prologue. So we have some characters that aren't really through the rest of the film. It's kind of a setup. But as soon as we meet David Randall, I'm on board. Yeah, we start off in a observatory in South Africa. I think so. Yeah, the people you meet there, except for David Randall. And these are the guys that basically discovered what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And they're abandoned the rest of the film. <laughs> right. But David Randall is a courier. And he's bringing his information that he found to New York or that they found to New York City to meet with some other stargazers, as he calls them. Yeah. <laughs> I love that he calls them stargazers for the entire, even towards the end. Yep. It becomes the pet name that he has for one of the other characters. I don't know much about this cast. David Randall, somebody who drew me in immediately. And you could just read off of him what kind of character he is at the very beginning of the film. He's not saying much to the woman in the cockpit, but the way he's leering at her. He's a playboy. Yeah. <laughs> Played by Richard. Is it Durr or Dare? D-E-R-R. I'm not sure how it does. It's not somebody I have any experience with, so I don't know. The only other film, you know, when I look at oh, his. Oh, he was on Star Trek. He was on Star Trek. Yep. And uh, he was also on WKRP in Cincinnati. I've seen him there. But uh, the only other thing that really jumps out at me that I've seen movie-wise is Firefox, the Clint Eastwood film. That was the very first Clint Eastwood movie I'd ever saw. (laughs) And I don't remember him in that, so. All I remember about Firefox was the first Clint Eastwood movie I saw and the first time that I saw a movie in which somebody got shot with bullets and they bled. Uh, All I remember is think in Russian. Think (laughs) in Russian. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Back to a better movie. (laughs) Yes, this is true. But yeah, uh, David Kerr, he's just, I'm sorry, Richard Kerr is David Randall. I love this guy. And it's his journey that goes through the entire film. I, I love watching his character arc as he goes along. He's a well-rounded character. He changes from the beginning to end. This is a guy that I want to hang out with. This is a guy I want to take with me to the other, another world. 
I really enjoyed his performance and the characterization. I was on, and even when he shows up to pick up the package and they tell him he's two hours late, I uh, had to drop off a sick <laughs> aunt. Yeah. That's not what you were doing, unless that's a euphemism for something else. Well, I like the fact that all he really cares about is the money. Yeah. Because he makes that clear that, you know, I was supposed to get, you know, some amount of money and he's the guy giving him the, the stuff to take to New York says, well, you'll be paid when you get there. I don't think he ever does. Well, no, he does get paid some, but I don't know if he ever gets his full amount. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, he really only cares about himself. Mm-hmm. He only cares about money. He uses, and I don't want to say uses women, but he probably drifts from woman to woman as a playboy, not really caring about anybody else but himself. Sure. And you get to see some of those skills on display, not necessarily to get a little action, but even when he first interacts with Joyce Hendren, played by Barbara Rush, who was fantastic, by the way, when he's trying to get information out of her about what's in the mysterious black box that he's carrying around. And that's one of the too. conditions. Yeah. He's <laughs> not supposed to open up the box or share it with anybody. He has to give it to one very specific person. But he's curious, just like everybody else, right? Well, I would be curious when you start getting telegrams saying that a newspaper is offering you $5,000 for the story of what's in the box. Right. <laughs> and you have no idea what's in there. Well, it's Gwyneth Paltrow's head. I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> I'm not sure that'd be worth $5,000. <laughs> we are in rare form today, buddy. <laughs> I'm just drinking coffee. I don't know what, no. Uh, <laughs> no, but you get to see some of that kind of manipulation of the fairer sex when he's kind of playing along with Joyce in the cab trying to wheedle out of her what's in the box without asking what's in the box. He's playing along like he knows what's in the box the whole time, but his face is showing no, he has no clue. Yeah, that's a good scene because he does trick her into revealing a little bit of of it. I mean, obviously, he now knows it's it's something major and it's leading to the end of the world. Yeah. Barbara Rush, like I said, I thought she was fantastic in this. Really, really enjoyed her. And she's cute, too. That is true, (laughs) but I thought she brought a lot to the table as a performer, as an actress. Yes, very much so. But yeah. uh, I also thought she was cute. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, you don't have to apologize. She's no Julie Adams. No. Um, <laughs> well, you know, let's talk about some more of the cast here real okay. quick. Uh, we've got uh, Barbara Rush playing Joyce Hendren. Her father is Dr. Cole Hendren, played by Larry Keating. Mr. Ed's neighbor. That's right. I was, I'm, <laughs> this whole time, I'm looking at it, I'm thinking... I know this guy. He's a character actor from something. What have I seen him on? Mr. Ed. <laughs> that was on Nick at Night in my home growing up quite a bit. Same here. But he yeah. is it, a completely different character. because oh, God, yes. <laughs> he's competent in this film. <laughs> yes. Now, he's the scientist that's in charge of the project to repopulate this other world. I thought he was really good, too. And I like that he takes a heroic turn at the end. Really like that. A super heroic turn at the end. I really like that. I like the fact that he played, he's in charge of what he understands. Yes. I mean, he's perfect for, you know, doing the, the science and building the rocket and understanding what's going to happen and everything. But he's still a little naive when it comes to human nature, which I thought was a, a great way. I, I really like how all that turned out. Especially when it comes to dealing with Mr. Sidney Stanton, millionaire who gets involved in the project, played by John Hoyt. <laughs> As you said earlier, <laughs> you nailed it. Not a big fan of this guy. No, he's a dick. <laughs> <laughs> he's a necessary evil. They needed the money, and he had the money to support the project, to build the rocket, to do what they're doing. Yeah, governments turned him down, so they had to turn to him to finance the project. Does he always play that kind of a character? The only other thing that I've seen him on is he's a recurring character on Hogan's Heroes, where he plays German generals. Okay. The one episode I can remember the most, he's more clueless. So he's not really a jerk. He's just naive. Sure. Well, he did a lot of television. A lot of television. Uh, He was in the Twilight Zone, Leave it to Beaver, which will be relevant in the next episode. Uh (laughs) No no matter what I thought. Yeah. (laughs) We'll get to that. Uh, Outer Limits. (laughs) Uh, craft suspense theater, which I love suspense and I'm so bummed that it's not airing right now where I'm at. So I would love to watch it again on TV. I can still watch it on YouTube. I did the time tunnel. And of course he was in flesh Gordon, which I'm sure is also something Scott's seen. So 
I actually own it. Of course you do. With Craig T. Nelson. Uh huh. <laughs> but X, the man with the X-ray eyes, he's in that, and I like that movie a lot. Oh, I like his, I like him in this movie. Oh yeah. He never wavers. He's always this, <laughs> and he tries. Man, he tries to have one over on Doctor uh, Hendren, but it never no, never it, goes his way. Nope. He's the man that realizes that when it comes time to launch this rocket, there's going to be a revolt. So his idea to quell it is to have a whole bunch of shotguns on this on site, which doesn't turn out to work real well. Yeah, he brings the guns, which Ferris gets a hold of. Now Ferris is his servant, manservant. Yes, manservant pushing him, his attendant pushing him around in the wheelchair. He's played by Frank Cady, who's another regular on Old Nick at Night because he was on Green Acres, Petticoat Junction. Another TV actor, character actor type. Uh, but again, in this, he's not playing that kind of 50s sitcom kind of character. He's a guy who takes a dark turn at the end of the movie. <laughs> it's like, whoa. That's one I didn't see coming. No. I, I expected him to get left behind. I expected Stanton to not make arrangements for him to come along, but I didn't expect it to go that way. Through the whole movie, the only time you ever see him is when Stanton's yelling at him to push him around push him around or close the door from yeah. the other side yeah now see i figured stanton would want to bring him along just so he had someone to push around on the new planet but lots of really good performers in here peter hansen is dr tony drake now he's an interesting guy too and i really like this character too i mean very altruistic he has a good art as well yeah he was really peter hansen who again this is a cast that i'm not very familiar with I need to be, though, because I think they all did a stellar job. A lot of them are from TV. If you go and look at their IMDb pages, almost every one of them is dominated with television. I'm sure Hanson is the same way. Did a lot of television. Um, I'm looking over the list here, and I'm not seeing a heck of a lot that I recognize. But yeah, lots of TV. Lots of TV. So a lot of the folks that are in this film are primarily television stars. Actually, not really even stars, more like character actors. Well, the movie was produced by Paramount, and was Paramount doing a lot of TV back then? Could they have just pulled a bunch of contract players over? Or not necessarily contract players, but people that they were already working with? Could be. You know, they, the TV show goes on hiatus, and these people aren't doing anything. Mr. Ed's neighbor needs something to do this week. Let's put him in the movie. I'm just surprised that, especially him, Larry Keating, wasn't in other films, because he's really good. Oh, he's great in this. He's got a sense of authority, but there's still this like a twinkle of scientific adventure in his eyes. He brings a lot. Yeah, I wish he had done more television too. Or I'm sorry, more film too. Uh, we'll still have Mr. Ed in reruns, right? <laughs> Anybody else in the cast of note that we should mention? I can't really think of many others. That, there is somebody that I'm going to mention before we wrap up, but who might that be? I'll ruin the surprise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Unless you're going to bring it up. I, I will let you surprise. Okay. Because I'm not sure where you're going with that. Well, what about Paul Freeze? Oh, the voiceover Paul Freeze. I thought you were going to mention uh, Hayden Rourke. I was going to mention somebody else, but well, let's talk about Paul Freeze <laughs> and Hayden Rourke. Hayden Rourke, Dr. Bellows from I Dream of Genie. You see him early on in the film. You know, we're not going to get through this recording without <laughs> songs running through our heads the entire time. <laughs> Because yep. now I get I Dream of Genie. We started with the Rocky Mountain Picture Show. Or Rocky Mountain. <laughs> the Rocky Mountain Picture Show. <laughs> That's a whole different film. <laughs> with music by John Denver. <laughs> oh, man. So the I Dream of Genie guys in here. <laughs> Hayden Rourke, he's one of the doctors involved in the project, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah Dr. Emery Bronson. There's nobody in this cast that I dislike. Even the kid. Normally, kid actors kind of you know, questionable. But even the kid was okay. Yeah, they, they rescue a kid late in the movie and end up taking him along and his puppy that he finds. Rudy Lee is his name. And he was in the World of Worlds as well. And a Walt Disney Wonderful World of Color at one point. So he must have been a um, George Pal go-to kid. <laughs> <laughs> We need a kid. Get that Rudy fella. That's right. Bring him over. Give him a puppy. But back to back to Paul Freeze. He's yeah, the president. The president of the U.S. Because there's a, a scene late in the film where you just hear a voiceover of the president talking on television. You know, when I heard the voiceover, I was like, is that Paul Freeze? I can't. 
it sounds kind of like him, but it sounds like he's doing something different to his voice. It's got to be. No, I don't know. But he's doing kind of a southern accent. But it is Paul Freeze. Who is Paul Freeze for people who don't know? Who is Paul Freeze? You don't know? (laughs) (laughs) You don't know the ghost host? I know the ghost host. (laughs) But this isn't Disney Indiana where we assume that everybody knows the ghost host. Paul Freeze is the man who does the ghost host in the Haunted Mansion. Which is fantastic. But he's done a lot of television and voiceover work as well. Wasn't he? And now I'm going to show my ignorance. Wasn't he also Boris Badenoff? (laughs) Yes, he was. (laughs) Wow. Looking through his list, he was also John Lennon and George Harrison in the animated Beatles TV show. Yep. Uh, He did the voice of Ludwig von Drake for Disney. He did the voiceover for Atlantis, The Lost Continent, another George Powell film that we talked about. And there's a movie coming out on Blu-ray here shortly, uh, later this year. I don't remember when, but it's called Burn Witch Burn. It's also known as Night of the Eagle. He does the intro narration to that as well, which is like a prayer to protect you from the movie you're about to watch. He also played Sherlock Holmes. Really? In the famous adventures of Mr. Magoo TV series. He was Sherlock Holmes. He's got a great voice. Once you hear his voice, you're going to pick him up in anything that he does. He's, he's fantastic. He's like the movie trailer guy before there was a movie trailer guy. <laughs> wow, just he was in Some Like It Hot? Wow. He did appear on screen a couple of times, and there's a science fiction movie that I'm blanking on that he was in the very beginning of the movie. And <laughs> not to get too inside baseball here, but when I first saw him on screen, I thought he looked like Nick Brown from the B-movie cast. <laughs> Now, I don't know if I still think he looks like that, but I first saw him, I was like, (gasps) (laughs) Well, he also was in a movie that you and I have already done on this show, the very first time I was on this show. Which one was that? Do you remember? Earth versus the Flying Saucers. He was the alien in that film. That's right. Yes. And the sci-fi movie that I was thinking about that he's in on screen in front of the camera that I couldn't remember, Space Master X7 from 1958 which is about this giant fungus that comes down and starts taking over the world. It's awesome. Relating stuff with George Powell. He's in War of the Worlds. He's the second radio reporter and the opening announcer. He also did a voice in Monolith Monsters, which we talked about with Tom Bigler not too long ago, which you just saw. On which some was really cool. I think Paul Fries and George Powell, you put the two of them together, you got a hit, right? Yes. All right, I'll mention the other guy that's in this movie now, even though he doesn't turn up until later. This movie's got Superman in it. Kirk Allen turns up at the very, very end. He's an uncredited role, but he's there for a second. And I swear I thought I recognized him. Kirk Allen played Superman in the 50s. And uh, yeah, he's there. I don't know why he didn't get a credit. I don't know if it was a, a union thing or something, but he's there. All right. So When Worlds Collide comes out in 1951. George Powell, you know, has got a career going at this point. I think people kind of expect a certain kind of from George Powell. And he certainly delivers. Uh, we were talking a little bit about the setup with this film where we learned that while the earth is doomed, doomsday gets thrown around quite a bit. The word doomsday gets dropped a lot. It's actually based on a 1933 novel written by Philip Weil and Edward Balmer called When Worlds Collide. Because there is a sequel to the book that George Powell always wanted to do. You know, I keep thinking back and I know the monster movies did sequels, but were there a lot of sequels done in... 50s and 40s sci-fi? Not a whole lot. It would have been interesting to see a sequel to this because it really does end on a, and then what happened kind of note. You know, yes. I think that could be really interesting as well. But these are characters that I really enjoyed hanging out with. Yeah, I would like to see them try to basically start humanity once again. Even though my wife looks at me after the film was over and she's like, 44 people isn't enough to start a society. No, it's really not. And having not read the novel and, or knowing what happens in the story, you know, in the sequel follow-up, do they run into another civilization? Is it a completely barren planet that they start over from new? I, I, who knows? Well, in the film, they do make reference several times that there's other countries building rockets. So we don't know if any, oh, of, them, if any of them make it to the planet or not. If they succeed. So there's, that's where your conflict can come from, too, because really they left their main source of conflict behind. I mean, there could be a Russian ship that landed on the other side of the planet. The Cold War in space! <laughs> I mean, it was the 50s, right? Yep. I'm kind of curious now to go track down the novels. 
because I don't have enough to read. <laughs> Just like I don't have enough movies to watch. The original book was 33 and Afterworlds Collide was 34. Well, we're not going to get into a really super deep uh, plot point by plot point discussion, but I think we've pretty much set up the movie. And, and the bulk of the film is humanity trying to find a way to survive, or at least these little pockets of humanity at first. Because when the scientists approach the world governments about what's happening, nobody believes them. Yeah, they go to the UN and well, laughed out, basically, right? Well, they bring the UN also brings in another scientist that says that you know I've looked at everything that um, they're presenting, and I don't think it's going to be anything. Heavenly bodies pass by our planet all the time. We're going to be fine. Every year, there's a bunch of doomsday crackpots that come out of the woodwork, and I can't believe you're one of them, Doctor Stanton or yes. Doctor Hanson. Unfortunately, the governments aren't going to help them. But there are some people in the private sector who are willing to help and put up their money. A couple of humanitarians and <laughs> Stanton. Stanton, just he wants to finance it, but he wants say on who's going to go. And that was a great scene for me, too. I loved watching Hendren and Stanton kind of go at it. And it's not physical because Hendren's a scientist type, and I don't know if he could really hold his own in a fight. And Stanton's confined to the wheelchair. So it's all wordplay and dirty looks. Yeah, it's a mental battle between the two yeah. of them. Yeah, and you know, who's going to fold first when they're arguing about what it's going to take to get Stanton's money for this project? Dr. Hendren quickly gets him down to where, yeah, you'll have a seat on it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Stanton wants to pick the entire surviving crew. He wants to pick who's going to go reseed humanity. Hendren's like, you're not qualified, buddy. <laughs> no. Well, half and half. No. <laughs> Hendren, Hendren does not fold. He sticks to his principles. He sticks to his guns. And, and he's he right. He sticks to science, yeah. Because he would probably pick a bunch of, I don't mean this in the wrong way, but he would probably pick a bunch of people his age. Yep. Which is not what you want to go to a primitive planet, try to start humanity once again. You need young, virile people. Young, healthy people. People who aren't necessarily confined to a wheelchair. People who you know, aren't judged on how much money they have or what kind of success they have here. We're talking about people who could really propagate the species mm -hmm. and do it well. Stanton folds pretty, I mean, eventually folds. Hendren has him over a barrel. I mean, it's, I'll get the money somewhere else and you're out of here. I just thought that was really cool. So that's one of my favorite scenes in the entire film. And then we have a lot of scenes of them building the rocket and training people and everybody coming together. I think they get like six, seven hundred people. A lot of people involved. I think they actually mentioned there's like six or seven hundred people, but only forty-four of them will get to board the ship. You know, Stanton's got a seat. Hendren and his daughter has a seat. The doctor, uh, Doctor Drake, has a seat, and David Randall gets a seat. David Randall becomes more and more valuable to the crew as time goes along. He starts out as a courier, you know, just a guy who's running stuff back and forth. He becomes a pilot for them bringing yeah. the people into this construction site. And then he's also part of the crew that, that learns how to fly the ship. This whole time, though, he's mentioned a couple times that he doesn't see him having value in this new world. He doesn't think that his weight should go on this ship because they have a strict weight limit. I thought that was interesting to see him go on that journey because he starts as a very selfish kind of guy, you know, using women. He's a playboy, whatever. I'm in it for the money. But it's a very Han Solo-like journey here where he does find something to care about, but it's very altruistic as well. You know, he's going to sacrifice his own space, his own life to make room for somebody who he feels has more value than him. Yeah, because he's like, there's not going to be anything for me to do. There's going to be no planes or anything for me to fly. There's nothing to be a courier for. Not so. for another hundred years or so, you won't yes. have an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> well... Joyce thinks he's got value. Well, they do have to repopulate the species. <laughs> <laughs> so as much as I like David Randall, he's a little homewrecker too. Because before he comes on the scene, Joyce and Dr. Drake are... They're engaged, aren't they? I thought so. They were a couple at least. Uh, I know Drake's been talking about getting married. And until she laid eyes on Randall, <laughs> she seemed like she would go that way. But Which at first really upsets Dr. Drake. He's wanting to come to blows several times with... Um, David Randall over it. You know, because I'd never seen the movie, there is that scene with the helicopter. When that happened, I my heart sank. I'm like, oh, my, that's, he's going to, no. You know, I really didn't <laughs> think he was going to come back. 
I didn't either because then you know my mind's thinking, how is Joyce going to handle this? How is she going right. to, you know, is she going to force him to go back or what's going to happen? And I feel like that might have been the moment too when Drake finally made his decision about what he's going to do and how he's going to make sure. You know, I love Joyce, but I want her to be happy. So yep. he's going to make sure that there's a way for her and David to stick together. I don't think we should spoil it, but how he tricks David to get on the spaceship is inspired. Oh, it's great. What a good guy, huh? Yes. <laughs> what a good guy. Dr. Drake deserves to hook up with somebody after that. That's. <laughs> I hope he can be happy on the new world, too, because he did such a good job. That was inspired. That's a good way to put it. There wasn't anybody in this film that I did not believe in their story. I thought everybody did a great job. And I was hooked, man. This could have been a miniseries and I would have enjoyed it. I would have loved to have seen a sequel. I want to know more about I want to hang out with these guys more. <laughs> I want to see them try to, to rebuild. Yeah. You know, it's definitely a Noah's Ark type situation because they also have animals. They bring all a bunch of animals to the new planet. And they're smart about it, too. Yeah. They're very smart about it because at one point they talk about how they're going to have to knock the animals out so that they don't panic during the takeoff. Of course. I, I wouldn't have thought that through. <laughs> so. it, there's, there's also one scene in this film that I want to call out that really impressed me that I have not seen in any other film like this. There's a scene where it shows them microfishing books. Yeah. All these different books that's all all reference books that they're going to need. You, you know, usually you see a movie like this, you don't see them doing stuff like that, bringing educational material that they're going to need. Right. Which I thought was, especially for 51, really struck me as forward thinking. Yeah, that was a cool scene to see. It is very waspy. I mean, it's a bunch of white people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's very white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. You know, there's the Bible that they're scanning in. You know, there's no other religion represented here. But, I mean, that's a product of the time. That's definitely uh, a product of the 50s. And I'm sure if there was a Russian rocket somewhere, they were scanning in whatever it is they you know, needed to scan, whatever they were told to scan. That's a cool – everything in this movie is smart. There's nothing in here that felt like wasted time or wasted energy. I feel like the movie deserved a lot more. It needed a better – Final matte painting. <laughs> Are we going to talk about the final matte painting? <laughs> it's distracting. We, and we, it's sad. Unfortunately, at the end of the film, when they land on Zira, there's a matte painting to show you the environment. Did we clarify? Is Zira the star or the planet? Zira is the planet. Belos is the star. Okay. Basically, what's happening is Belos and has Zira orbiting it. And Zira comes close to the Earth, and it causes tidal waves and earthquakes and mass destruction. But it doesn't destroy the Earth. What destroys the Earth is when Bellus, the star, crashes into the Earth, right. which is like 19 days after Zira comes close to the Earth. Not very much longer. But yeah, this, there's a sense of urgency, too, when that's about to happen, because <laughs> we're three days behind schedule, says the announcer. Yes, have 72 hours and we're three days behind. Like, ah. I love, there's one sign that you see several times that says, waste anything but time. Time is our most precious resource. Yes. You see that sign several times. I like that one. But to get back to this matte painting, you actually see the planet of Zira. And from what I read, this was a mock-up. It wasn't the what was supposed to be the final image. A quickly drawn, painted mock-up and it looks really bad unfortunately they ran out of money they ran out of time and paramount used the mock-up as the final version it it's really a downturn after everything this movie's built up to to see this it's very over the top and cliche with the sun streaming through the clouds and it's just so the green rolling hills the pink trees it's not enough to ruin the movie at all no, it's just kind of a, this movie deserves better. Exactly. With everything else that we've seen, we've seen Earth traumatized by a planet rushing by it and the gravitational pull getting screwed up. And as at one point they say the ocean's ripped from the floor. I mean, we see all of that and the way that we see the optical effects accomplished with the sun, or excuse me, the new star in the sky or the new planet. It all looks good. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, a couple times the rocket's obviously a miniature, but so what? That final map painting, it deserves so much better. But it's a good flick. Boy, this was good. Really it's, enjoyed it. It's as good lot. as I remembered watching it when I was younger. I'm I'm glad that I decided to revisit this film. Oh, it's so awesome. Uh, the score, Leith Stevens, I believe that's how his first name is pronounced. He did a lot of work in the 50s, a lot of George Powell productions, as well as a number of other projects. But, you know, again, it's that classic 50s sci-fi sound without being cliche and over the top. It's just an excellent film. I know I rented it from Amazon for $3.99. I'm going to buy this. <laughs> I'm going to add this to the collection because this one is solid. Yep. I'm go- I ended up renting it from Amazon too, but I am going to get myself a copy of it. I hope the DVD is as good as the transfer was on the Amazon streaming because I thought it looked pretty sharp. You So you did the high, high def? Yeah. See, I did the standard def and it still looked really good. Oh, good. Yeah, Amazon got an extra buck out of me. So <laughs> yeah, I'm cheap. I only spent $2.99. <laughs> but it's worth at least three. Exactly. <laughs> No, four, three ninety nine. And, and that's the takeaway, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> when worlds collide, worth at least three ninety nine. Flying saucers have invaded our planet. Washington, London, Paris, Moscow are key targets. The whole world is under attack. Can it survive? survivors of a disintegrated solar system. At this moment, the remainder of our fleet is circling your globe. What do you want with me? Arrange for your world leaders to confer with us in the city of Washington. They set up an electronic screen. The artillery doesn't penetrate. Never before has the screen reached such heights of excitement, breathtaking spectacle, hair-raising terror. See the saucer man's high-frequency disintegrator. See flying saucers travel thousands of miles in seconds. See great cities leveled by flying saucer monsters. Russ, look. The same kind of thing that's watched us since the beginning of the project. People of Earth, attention. People of Earth, attention. This is a voice speaking to you from thousands of miles beyond your planet. They're coming down to take over. They made that clear to us in the saucer. To the best of our knowledge, My wife and I are the only ones left alive. Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Down Place is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. A podcast about Hammer? I don't want to be the one to cross Tony Stark. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes, and other information about these classic films. 1951 Down Place can be found in iTunes or their website, www.1951downplace.com. Oh, so it's not Justin Hammer. 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. 
big thanks to Scott for appearing on the show this week. I'm going to say it again because every time he comes on the show, it's a treat for me. Not just because he's one of my dearest friends and I love talking movies with him, but he always helps me out by recording backup whenever we do one of these sessions for Monster Kid Radio. And more often than not, his backup sounds better than my primary. So, Scott, thank you. And I'm sure I'm speaking for the Monster Kid Radio listeners as well when I thank you for them, too. So... Scott can be found at DisneyIndiana.com, or you can find him on the next episode of Monster Kid Radio here in a couple of days, where we're going to talk about the John Agar film, The Mole People. So that's on the way. Come back here in a couple of days for that. Between now and then, why don't you head over to MonsterKidRadio.net to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. Everything that we talk about here on the show, there's a link in the show notes or on the website over there. You can find links to every song that's appeared here on the podcast, links to the band's websites, places where you can buy the albums and support the artists who support us. We also have a link to our Live 365 radio station where you can listen to music and trailers from classic monster movies 24-7. It's free through Live 365. A link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and support us here, like Andy, Joseph, Justin, Mia, Scott, Tracy, Steve, and Steve, and Tom, and Eileen have in the past. We've also got links to our Facebook group group where you can get involved with conversations with listeners of Monster Kid Radio about anything that we talk about here on the show. It's fair game. It's also fair game to call in a voicemail about anything that you've heard on any episode of the podcast. You can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. You can also email us an MP3, a wave, an audio file, or just a good old-fashioned text email to monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Again, all this is available over at monsterkidradio.net. I'm excited to get to John Agar, but I want to bask in the glow of When Worlds Collide a little bit longer because I loved this movie. This is probably one of my favorite first-time views for 2015, and but I think that's pretty good. This movie is excellent. I may even try to track down the original story and read it. You know, because I don't have enough free time. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song The Path to the Black Lodge. That belongs to The Imperial Royales. You can find them at theimperialroyales.bandcamp.com. It's on the album It's Dark, and it appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. Talk to everybody here in a couple of days. (laughs) 